Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our Big Island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha. Welcome to Island Conversations on the radio on the Big Island of Hawaii on Sundays on KWXX and on B97B93 and aired the following Friday on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo. Today we are concluding our conversation with Greenwell family historian Miley Melrose about Henry Nicholas Greenwell who arrived in 1850, the first Greenwell to come, and we're learning all about land and more. You may hear part one online at kwxx.com or b97hawaii.com. When we interrupted our conversation with Miley Melrose last week, she had just talked about the Great Earthquake of 1868, which was a 7.9 earthquake. And amazingly, the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory Seismic Network Manager Brian Shiro tells me we are still feeling occasional aftershocks from that very earthquake. And that led to what's called the Kaona Uprising, which Miley described as a horrible bloody part of Kona's history, and that's where we pick up the story today. Kaona is a nice Hawaiian man who started a religious cult, and he believed because of the giant earthquake that the end of the world was coming and that all the followers should go live with him down at Kainaliu Beach. But he was trespassing on somebody else's land, and he tried to buy the land, but he couldn't. So Sheriff Neville, an Englishman, is here in Kona, the landowner, Mr. Wall. They put up eviction notices. Kaona, please remove yourself from this land. You are trespassing. So Sheriff Neville goes down with his Hawaiian maikais, they're called. I mean, they were helping him. A huge crowd of people. And they go down to evict Kaona. And Kaona apparently rips the eviction notice off the tree, shreds it into little pieces of paper, stamps on the floor and spits on it because Mr. Paris writes this down. I mean, he is not going to be evicted. And Sheriff Neville is so frustrated. So like three days later, they decide to go down and they are definitely going to get Kaona and his 300 followers off the land. And they go down. But instead, what happens is somebody ropes Sheriff Neville and they kill him and they kill one of his assistants. And everybody gets all hot under the collar and says that they're going to burn everybody's houses and we are never going to leave. And the news goes off to Honolulu and they send over a bunch of policemen from Honolulu and they go and they round up everybody and they walk them down the coast and they put them in Hulehe'e Hale, it was called at that time, and Mokuaikawa Church because where else are you going to store a lot of people? There's no building here in Kona. I mean, it was a horrible thing. And how it affects Mr. Greenwell is he's at Mauka. The minister at Christ Church. Christ Church has been established in 1867. It is up in 1868 when Lizzie and Henry come back. And they're very fond of the minister. This wonderful Charles Williamson is this young missionary who's built the church with his own hands. He's running a Hawaiian school. The news comes because Mr. Williamson writes back to the church people in London. He goes, oh, gosh, you know, this morning at 10 o'clock, I heard the news because, of course, Sheriff Neville goes to Christ Church. You know, that Sheriff Neville is murdered, that the Hawaiian fellow is murdered, and they will not give up the body 
Of course, Mr. Williamson wants Sheriff Neville's body to bury it. They refuse to give up the body. So Williamson gets on a horse along with Mr. Greenwell, and they ride down to Kainaleo Beach. And Williamson asks in the name of God for Sheriff Neville's body. And here's Mr. Greenwell, ex-army man. He's asking in the name of the law. And they were refused. Was this not terrible, says Williamson back to London. So from my point of view family historian, I'm thinking, okay, this was a grim moment. Here's Granny. She's at Kalu Kalu. Her husband is riding off with the minister to go down and face a mob down at the beach, and she's pregnant. And the family has this kooky story that he has to hide Granny because the threat is to come out and burn all the white people's houses. And so some people in the family say that he put her in the cistern which I think is idiotic. I believe she stayed in his nice stone kitchen with the nice Chinese cook, Tin Sing, who is left over from this earlier horrible thing. He's one of the 12 Chinese that stayed with Mr. Greenwell, which makes me think that Mr. Greenwell wasn't so horrible. Otherwise, why would Tin Sing still be there? Anyway, I see Tin Sing with a huge meat cleaver, and if somebody is stupid enough to come into that kitchen and try to grab Mrs. Greenwell, they are going to get it. They do get Sheriff Neville's body eventually, but he is not buried at Christ Church. He is buried in his own backyard, which is what a lot of people, he had a Hawaiian wife and he is buried there. And actually nobody knows where his body is because we don't know where Sheriff Neville's house was, which is horrible. If somebody knows out there who's listening to this where Sheriff Neville's house is, I would like to know because his body is there and that of his two little boys that the minister buried a few weeks earlier, simply ghastly. Why did they not bury him in Christ Church Episcopal Graveyard if he was a member of Christ Church Episcopal Congregation? Well, I think the mother wanted him to be next to the bodies of his two little sons. He had these two little boys who got some filthy disease, hmm. and I think the idea of putting your little babies into a graveyard was just too hard to bear, so you put them close to your house, which I think people like to do. And there was no law against that. It was actually probably made a lot of sense in those days. But now here's Granny. Mr. Greenwell comes back. He was not murdered. Kaona was taken off to Honolulu, but later on, King Kalakaua pardoned him, and he did come back to Kona. He was a complicated, interesting man who was probably caught in a huge culture change, and this was his way of dealing with it, but it had a bad effect. And just for people who are listening, Billy Paris said that this Kaona uprising took a strong Hawaiian population that lived along our coastline here in Kona, from Keoho to where Kainaleo Beach is, and maybe to Kavaloa, and decimated it because those 300 people who were his followers they all dispersed afterwards, and they, they never meant to kill anybody. They were a religious commune. I mean, it all went badly. They just all dispersed, and the little town that was there, it never recovered. He believes it kind of ripped the heart out of a Hawaiian community that was here and never came back. When Kauna first went down to the beach, you said it was after the earthquake that he thought was a sign from God. What yes. was his thinking about that? What was his plan? Well, Kaona was the kind of man, I mean, you could say he might have been a teeny-weeny bit mentally ill. He had been in Honolulu, and he had found a dead body, and he locked it up in a house with him, and he tried to bring it back to life for several days and started smelling really horrible. And then they had to kind of bust the door down and get the body away from Kaona and tell him no. And so Kaona returned to Kona, and at this point, he looked just like a regular Christian convert. And he went to Mr. Paris's church, and this would be the church north of Kainaleo, Lanakila, the victory. 
And so he went to Mr. Paris and he said he had a shipment of Bibles. He had all these Bibles and he wanted to give them away for free to people in Kona. And he asked the church elders if he could store the Bibles in the church because it wasn't finished. So the church elders said yes. So all these Bibles end up inside Lanakila Church. And then Kaona starts camping in the yard of Lanakila Church and he He's out preaching, and he must have been a talented preacher, and he's preaching about the end days. And this was a terrible earthquake. It was in Kau with a mudslide, and, and there were tons of aftershocks, and it was really, really shaky, and walls were falling down. People were shook up, and so they were attracted to him. And then the church elders didn't like it that their church was taken over by this group of people that they couldn't control who weren't actually following the rules of the Lanakila church elders at all. They were doing their own thing. And then it was the rainy season. So apparently they were all getting rained on in the summer. So they went Makai and he was growing beans and peas and telling them we just have to grow some food that grows fast because we're not going to be here long. So he thought that they were going to be taken up to heaven. Yes. Yes, he did. I think he thought everybody else was going to be killed, but they would be taken up to heaven. And they went around wearing white robes. I mean, kind of interesting. And Kaona actually built his own tomb which is still down. It's empty. It, of course, never had his body in it. Where is it? It's there at Kainaleo Beach. It's made of stucco. At one point, it was just filled with Bibles, probably those same free Bibles that got him in trouble with Mr. Paris. Kaona, it was just a blip, you know, on the radar screen, but it was very bad for Sheriff Neville and very bad for the Maika'i, and people did get arrested and taken to Honolulu. What I love about this is Granny You know, the Kaona uprising is in the fall of 1868, and she has her first son, William Henry Greenwell, June 7th, 1869. And that is my grandfather. The eldest son was born, so his mother had to live through the Kaona uprising and have the first of her 10 children. In addition to your grandfather, she had nine others. Well, she did. And what's fun is this is actually written in a little journal. And apparently Mr. Greenwell, of course, Mr. Greenwell is not an obstetrician. But they had a perfectly good idea when this baby was going to arrive. They knew exactly when it was going to arrive. And he wrote a letter to Dr. White of North Kohala, who was a missionary doctor. And he said, could you please come to Kona to assist my wife with the birth of our first child? And Dr. White very wisely, writes back and says, oh, I'm so sorry. There are lots of missionary ladies up here who are expecting their children at exactly the same time, so I'm sorry. You're on your own, Mr. Greenwell. Well, so there was no doctor of any kind in the Kona district? There was no doctor of any kind. There were no government physicians. There were no doctors. When Granny Greenwell got here, there were very few white ladies. Mrs. Paris was here. Honestly, there were very few Europeans, Americans, you name it. They weren't here, and there were no doctors. There were no doctors. There were no veterinarians. There was hardly anyone. But there was a woman who could be a midwife, which was Mrs. Yates. So Mrs. Yates, who has lots of Yates descendants in Kona today, she was a young Irish lady married to Mr. Yates. He was English. Again, a man who had been attracted to the gold rush, lived in California, and then come on to Hawaii. This was a very common story. I mean, I think the whole West and Hawaii has many roots back to the gold rush. So Mrs. Yates came over, and apparently Mr. Greenwell had a book in hand. Mrs. Yates had her own brains of how to deal with babies, and Mr. Greenwell writes, so I had a fine, healthy son delivered this morning, which was a great blessing. Granny went on every year and a half, and she ended up having six boys and four daughters, all born at home, never with the doctor. It was always either Mrs. Yates or her husband, or she 
probably learned how to do it herself because she was pretty good at it. <laughs> By 10, you would think that they, you would have learned a thing or two. You would have learned a thing or two. And I think she was. You know, people always say, oh, dreadful. You know, the 19th century, all the babies would be dying. None of her children ever died. None of them ever got a filthy disease. The next generation, she had several grandchildren who died of the Spanish flu, diphtheria, horrible dysentery, being killed in World War One. But those first 10 had kind of a charmed life. They grew up, I think, not with too many germs. They just grew up at Kalu Kalu, and they were perfectly fine. That's very nice. Now, Henry Nicholas Greenwell actually opened his store almost right away when he arrived. But Elizabeth, your great-grandmother, she became the storekeeper, did she not? She certainly did. And Mr. Greenwell, again from the record, in the Kingdom of Hawaii, you had to apply for a license to have a store. So you paid the government. And the postal system was very loosely arranged. So Mr. Greenwell actually leased a store in Kailua. When he married Granny, he brings her back to Kona. He leases a store in Kailua from 1868 to 1872, and he's running a store in Kailua. He has his store, Malcolm, and he has a post office. Mr. Brickwood has said, okay, you can have a post office in your store in Kailua, and you can have a post office in your store up here at Kalukalu. Greenwell, he's got a wife. His wife can run the Mauka store he rides early in the morning down to Kailua. He spends the night down there in the first year of their marriage and is in Kailua, which is actually the place to be, of course, because, you know, there's Hulehe'e Hale. I just have to tell you, Greenwell tried to rent what we now call Hulehe'e Palace, but he calls it Hulehe'e Hale, which I think is nice, Hulehe'e House, from Princess Ruth, Ke'elikolani. And she very wisely says, no. This is when, you know, Queen Emma and Kamehameha IV used to come to Hulehe'e, and they had their little boy, and then he died, and then they got all their furniture out of it, and the palace was actually quite empty and not very well used. So Greenwell thought it would be a great place for a store, but they said, no, no, no. So he had to use an old missionary house as a store. But he did. He ran a store down there, and he gave him, you know, eyes on the bay to see what was coming and going and kind of keep his ear to what was happening. Not that there was that much happening, but I think he enjoyed it. I interviewed Tom Woods of the Hawaiian Mission Houses Museum about some of the tax records, and he showed me a map of downtown Kailua, and there is one place called the Greenwell Store, and I didn't realize it was Henry Nicholas Greenwell. I thought it was maybe some other relative or descendant, so that is very interesting. And a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations, and I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. We are on the radio on the Big Island of Hawaii on Sundays on KWXX and B97B93, and on the following Friday on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo. And then, of course, the podcasts are always available at kwxx.com and b97hawaii.com. Before we get back to our conversation with the Greenwell family historian, Miley Melrose, let's get a brief word from KTA Superstores. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. And now back to our conversation with Greenwell family historian Miley Melrose. 
in addition to being the postmaster and the store owner, I read that Greenwell was also school superintendent, and he handled customs at Kealakekua Bay. Is all that true? It is true. I wouldn't call him the school superintendent. I'd call him the paymaster. The government would send up bags. It sounds like it was gold coins sometimes. I kid you not. This would be in his journal. Today I paid all the schoolmasters of North Kona, then of South Kona. After he died, his children, his daughters in particular, you know, and so did Mr. Paris's daughter, they got very involved with the local schools. These are little tiny schools that are all for the Hawaiian children with Hawaiian teachers and sometimes English teachers, but they're not for white children. They are for Hawaiians, and they're all along the coast. So where did the white children go to school? The Greenwell children didn't go to school anywhere. <laughs> they were homeschooled. <laughs> they were homeschooled. Mrs. G was in charge of the little children. And then when they got older, either the minister, Mr. Davies, up at Christ Church, would take the older boys. And Mr. Greenwell spends hours, hours with his sons. And he's teaching them Portuguese. And the men all speak Hawaiian. I mean, they have to speak Hawaiian because they're out on the land. He is the collector of customs at Kealakekua Bay, which means he must go down in every ship that comes in. Whaling ships are still coming in. And, you know, he'll write, you know, the bounding billin came in from Honolulu and he has to go down on his horse, get rowed out to this boat and make sure that the bounding billin has its papers from the harbor master in Honolulu that it has been cleared. And he writes in his journal, sometimes a boat will come in, it won't have the proper clearance, he will send it back to Honolulu, then the boat will come back. I pass him a letter from the harbor master in Honolulu saying, thank you, Mr. Greenwell, appreciate your sending this fellow back because they never did the paperwork that they were supposed to. So government involvement is not something new. It's something that was going on in the 1860s. The Hawaiian Kingdom government was very much involved. Oh, it was completely. When they set up the constitutional monarchy for the kingdom of Hawaii, I mean, poor Liho Liho never was alive long enough because he died. He went off to London with his darling queen and got the measles and died. But Kamehameha III was raised in an environment. He was completely trained to be a constitutional monarch. They wanted a school system. They wanted courts. They wanted roads, taxes, everything. The whole shebang. And the problem was to get people to fill those vacancies. So somebody like Mr. Greenwell, he could read, he could write, he was honest. He saw a future. A man who's raising 10 children in the kingdom of Hawaii, he's a naturalized citizen of the kingdom of Hawaii, he wants this place to thrive and be steady and reliable and prosperous. He's constantly working in his investments and what he does to make sure there's a good future for his children here. You have now talked about all these different things he's doing, and clearly he's also involved with agriculture, but he also was involved with ranching because I understand he was raising, what, cows and sheep? Yes. This man has a burning desire to buy land. He's my great-grandfather. It's not that he's that wealthy because people ask, now, how did he buy it? He took out loans. This man is paying 9 and 10% interest to Hackfeld and Company, to James Campbell, to his neighbors. He is borrowing lots of money from Henry Weeks, paying it all back. And he gets his first piece at Kalu Kalu, and then he does buy little pieces next door. Pieces come up for sale. People die without wills. Probably a lot of Hawaiians died intestate. Okay, you look at the Greenwell property. A big piece of Greenwell property was Kealakikua Ranch. The eldest son, my grandfather's W.H. Greenwell, he ended up with a ranch running up through Kalu Kalu and Hokukano. 
The second son, Arthur, inherited Kealakekua. Now, Kealakekua was one giant ahupua'a that Mr. Greenwell purchased from the Reverend John D. Paris and his son, John D. Paris Jr. You can tell in the journal. He gets a letter from Mr. Paris saying, I need to sell this. Billy Paris, if he were alive, would say this is true, that John D. Paris's son wanted to go off to Maui. He was going to go to Maui with his wife and go into ranching there. He needed money. He needed cash. So Mr. Greenwell writes back, oh, I don't want to buy all of your land. I would like to buy so many acres here. And Mr. Paris writes back because he puts in his journal, you know, received a letter. Mr. Paris said he does not want to sell his land piecemeal. He has other people interested in it. Six weeks pass and Mr. Greenwell writes in his journal, today I have purchased for X thousand dollars Kealakikua Ranch, you know, Mauka of this line. And then Mr. Greenwell gets on his horse, I think with Mr. Todd, maybe Mr. Muller, maybe Mr. Weeks, and they ride up because this is a funny time, the 19th century. It's not that there's a nice real estate agent who's coming over and says, oh, these are the meets and bounds of your property and you have exactly, you know, 500 square acres. No, we are dealing with the Hawaiian method of boundaries, which is the X in the ohia tree and a rock over here on a lava stump. And it gets Mr. Greenwell really irritated because he can't really tell where his boundaries are. And everybody's writing to the kingdom of Hawaii and saying, please send some surveyors over here. And it takes a really long time to get the survey people over here. And people still question the boundaries. But he ends up with a huge chunk of land. So Mr. Greenwell ends up paying a giant mortgage. He has Kealakekua Ranch. And what he also has right next to Hokukano up Mauka is lease land. Bernice Pawahi Bishop, the Ali'i, own huge chunks of land because when the constitutional monarchy is set up, we have the royal lands, we have the government lands, we have other kinds of lands. Bernice does not want to be over here ranching in Kona, and she has a huge ahupua'a, Keoho 1 and 2, which are up on the plains above Kona. They cut off all these ahupua'a. They go from you know, the west of Hualalai, across the southern flank of Mauna Loa. A lot of land, high elevation. It's up where Umi's temple is, you know, we're talking 5,000 feet, a lot of cinder, a lot of giant trees. Mr. Wall gets that lease, this young immigrant. His parents had come from Europe. He comes out here to visit a relative in Kau, leases the land of Keoho too. And we know about this because of Isabella Bird. Coming out here in 1872 and 3, she rides up and spends a couple of weeks with Mr. Wall up at his sheep station at Ka'anahaha and Kealapuali. It's a wonderful description of what was up there. And Mr. Wall, this young French, marries a Hawaiian wife and goes up at 5,000 feet and builds an octagonal sheep shearing shed. He builds little houses for a manager and for himself and then for the workers and he builds stone walls to keep the sheep in and then you need some water tanks because you have to have some water to have the horses then you need a horse pen then he has to build a road because you have to get the wool off the backs of the sheep and put them in a wagon and get them down to the ocean because the only way you're going to get the wool the bales of wool from Kona to Honolulu is on a ship just an amazing outlay of money so he leased this land he builds a sheep station and he puts a little house over on Kaumalu Malu because he never gets a decent survey of his land. So instead of building his little tiny wooden house, because he doesn't want to live right next to all the bang sheep and the smell of wool, it's just a messy situation. So Mr. Wall builds a tiny little wooden house closer to Hualalai, and that is where Isabella Bird stays, and she writes in her book 
about being up on the side of Hualalai and looking out the window at night and seeing the moon glowing over the slopes of Mauna Loa and seeing Kilauea's fires flickering red into the night sky. I mean, just an incredible image. And here's Isabella Bird, you know, a 40-year-old English woman up on the side of the mountain with Mr. Wall and his Hawaiian-speaking wife and the Hawaiian wife's mother, who's running around in a blanket covered with tattoos, eating bananas and coconuts, and she's starving to death because Isabella Bird said she had really bad teeth, chewing on dried sheep meat, which they're doing up there is really hard for her. And the dogs are all ravenous because if you bring a coconut, the dog will jump on the table and shred the coconut to ribbons and get the meat out. I mean, just kind of incredible. Mr. Wall has this amazing thing up on the side of the mountain, and he only gives it a couple of years. Wool prices are bad, but he has some merino sheep, and he has Hawaiian shearers. He sells his lease to Dr. George Trousseau, who's one of these interesting, debonair French doctor who has run away from his wife and sons in Paris, been off in Australia for a while, ends up in Honolulu. He's French, he's a doctor, he looks amazing. So, of course, he ends up in the Hawaiian court, and he is the doctor for King Lunalilo, and he comes to Kona when Luna Lilo is fading during the end of his first year, his only year of being the king. They stay at Hulihei. Holly, Mr. Greenwell meets Dr. Trousseau. Queen Emma is also there, and Queen Emma likes to go on adventures. So she wanted to ride from Kailua Bay up to Umi's temple, 15 miles up the side of the mountain on horseback in the little side saddle, because she is not going to ride like Isabella Bird either. And I know, I just know this is what happened, is that Dr. Trousseau rides along. He goes up into the mountains. He sees the beauty of the clear crystal air of Kona at the 5,000-foot level. He sees the towering koas. He hears the little birds, and he thinks, what am I doing in Honolulu? I am out of my mind. Wall is probably there at his little house at Kealapuole, and they are French. They're both French, so they speak to each other. And Trousseau gets the lease, and he stays up there on the mountain with his Hawaiian lover, Makanoi, they are excommunicated from Lanakila Church because this is not missionary behavior to run around with your beautiful Hawaiian lover. And they're up there at Ka'anahaha doing sheep. Hawaiian shearers are up there, and Dr. Trousseau believes in everybody drinking wine at the end of the day, and I think everyone's having a jolly fun shearing sheep, packing it up, hauling it down this road that's on Nobriga land, the Trousseau Trail. And I think Mr. Greenwell is looking over his stone wall at Hokukano. He's envious. He's jealous. He sees all those sheep. And he thinks, I bet I could do that. You know, he really likes Dr. Trousseau. They become long acquaintances, but I think he's thinking I could do better. My mother said this is how it went down. His Dr. Trousseau got a hideous message from his wife. I mean, he's not divorced. He hears his wife is bearing down on him from California. Madame Trousseau, who is very irritated. And Dr. Trousseau runs down the hill on his horse and comes to the Greenwell store. Mr. Greenwell is not there, but Granny is there. And he says, oh, Madame, I cannot stay here. I am leaving my sheep station. Would you like to buy it? But Granny says yes. She agrees for Mr. Greenwell because she knows he wants this thing. And they end up purchasing. So now Mr. Greenwell is really in debt up to his eyeballs. Now he has this enormous lease that you pay the money because Bernice is going to die very shortly. So he has to pay it to the trustees of the heirs of Bernice Pawahi Bishop and Charles Reed Bishop. The Greenwell family keeps the lease of that land until they sell out to Tom Pace in 1986. And so it was actually leased land. It wasn't 
fee simple owned land? No, no. A lot of Hawaiian ranches, you know, they'll have a core of fee simple land, and then they lease either this ali'i land or other pieces of land that you cannot buy. The trustees could not sell Bernice's land. Plus, this is not utterly desirable land. It is really wild and remote, but great for sheep because sheep can't live down at a low elevation. They have to be up there where it's dry and they eat little bristly bushes and they run around in the lava and you don't pen them in. You just let them go. And that's why they're descendants of Dr. Trousseau and Mr. Greenwell's sheep still marching around on Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa because those little sheep actually love living up on the mountain. Greenwell land, though, also incorporated way up through Polani Ranch. Yes, Malu Malu is fee simple land. So that's a fee simple ahupua'a that borders the north side of Keoho too. Mr. Greenwell owned part of Kaupalehu. He has Kaupalehu, he has Kolokohonokohau, where the national park is, was owned by Palani Ranch and some of the heirs of Palani. And it used to be called Honokohau Ranch. Palani is the word for France. Frank Greenwell, the third Greenwell's son, is the one who was left kind of a quilt. It was not one big ahupua'a. It was kind of a patchwork of pieces of land, and the family had to kind of find ways to get the cattle from one piece of land to another. Greenwell also owned part of Lanihau in Kailua. From a ranching point of view, Kailua is not where you want to have cows. Cows can't eat lava. Who wanted Kailua? Well, it's actually a very good piece of land for Palani Ranch to have now and to develop. Mr. Greenwell dies in 1891, and he leaves a will, thank goodness. And I'm sure his heirs at the time were like, oh, poor Frank. He's got some really horrible lava land in North Kona. What will he ever do with that? Lani House Center, parking lot at King Kamehameha Hotel. All of that was part of Palani Ranch. And interesting, when you think about what Kona was back in the day, years and years ago, and now what it's become and how they thought the Frank portion of the land was, oh, no, junk land. Not so much, but the use, I mean, agriculture was huge. Ranching, you started asking about ranching, and so Mr. Greenwell ends up with a bunch of land. Cattle are wild here because of Vancouver bringing the cattle for Kamehameha the Great, and because they got loose out of Barbara Nobriga and Alan Wall's big Panui. So there are wild cattle on the mountain, and then people import cattle. Mr. Greenwell imported bulls, trying to improve it. And what happens is, try to imagine what Kona looked like, there are no fences. The Hawaiians didn't put up fences. They didn't have ungulates. They had little garden plots, but they weren't trying to keep out bulls and horses. And suddenly you've got this influx of these crazy other animals, the sheep running around at Mauka. Mr. Greenwell is traveling back and forth to Honolulu. He's trying to figure out, how can I use my land? How can I make some money out of this land? So he does it in two ways. He takes over that sheep station and he shears sheep and he sends thousands of pounds of wool to Honolulu and to London. And you have to put all this money out, paying your employees and everything all year. But then you get thousands of dollars back in one huge clump. So he has the sheep. When the Portuguese immigrants start to show up here in Kona in the 1878-79, they are coming from the Azores. They know about cattle. They know about making butter. They are eager to get on their own land. And so Mr. Greenwell says to them, I've got the land. I'll build you a house. I'll give you 20 milk cows. We'll go over and get these wild cows, and I'll catch them, and I'll give them to you. You build a pen. 
you make me butter. You bring kegs of butter to my house at Kalu Kalu because he doesn't want them selling the butter themselves. He's going to be the middleman. He's going to take this butter and send it to Honolulu. And by George, you should see these records. And he establishes dairies right on Mamalohoa, one at Onoli, one at Halikii, up at the 3,000-foot level, up at the 5,000-foot level, all these little dairies with wonderful Portuguese people. So we have butter, we have wool, and then, of course, the cattle. Honolulu had its own cattle for years, and it had a little population. It didn't need outer island cattle. But then times change. The city gets bigger. People are writing to Mr. Greenwell. We'd like to have some cattle. Mr. Greenwell's like, great. Let's go round up some cattle. Let's take them down to the sandy beach at Napopo, and we'll put them in the stone wall attached to Hikiao Heiau because there's a prison lot there. And then we'll get cowboys to get on their horses and tie a rope around the cow's neck and throw the rope out to a little rowboat and we'll drag the cattle off the sand and get them to swim out to the rowboat. And then we'll tie four cattle to each side of the rowboat by their horns because everybody has a horn. There's no such thing as a polled animal in those days. And then the those men will have to move that rowboat out to the little steamer and they'll have to put straps under each animal's belly and hoist this poor animal up into the air and wingle it over and put it down on a deck and send it to Honolulu. And Mr. Greenwell starts doing this like 26, 30 cattle at a time. Not huge loads of cattle. The boat can't handle it. And Mr. Paris is doing this thing too. There's pictures Napopo Beach and Kailua. As time goes on, Parker Ranch is doing this down at Kwai Hai. There are no piers. The steamers cannot come to shore. These cattle have to go. So, of course, it becomes a wonderful... You look back on it, it's all, ooh, terrific cowboys are in the water. And, you know, Armin von Temsky writes about, you know, sharks running around and ripping out horse bellies, which, thank God, Mr. Greenwell never writes about. But it's Mr. Greenwell's attention to detail and the fact that if you add up barrels of butter and head of cattle and pounds of wool, and if you keep track of this and you keep doing this steadily over and over and over again, by God, you will raise enough money to pay off your debts, and he's deeply in debt for decades. And as he gets to 1890, he's in his mid-60s, he's getting a little frail, he feels a little unwell, but he feels wonderful because he has paid off some huge chunks of debt, which were kind of weighing him down, and he kind of can see the future. It's going to be good. Well, the future is he was able to leave lots of land to his heirs. When you speak of the ranches, Kealikakua Ranch Center and Choice Mart, that is still in the hands of the Greenwell family. Yes, it is. Meg and Nick, brother and sister, children of Sherwood Greenwell. Yes. How much land ultimately do you think that Mr. Greenwell had in total? Do you have any idea? It would be a guess, but I mean, Mr. Heineke did a, for the territory of Hawaii. He wrote down a little report of all the ranches. So this is a sheer guess. 40,000 acres of fee simple land, and they all had leased land attached to them. And then there was other land, because Mr. Greenwell left some land in Keopuka to his daughters and in Honokohau. The girls really didn't get ranches. Their brothers were supposed to pay them $5,000, and they did. I mean, he did think of them. He did leave the girls something. But the girls were expected to marry men who would take care of them. I will have to find an answer, but it was a lot of land, you know, for one man in his lifetime to just sit there. It was incredible. And Granny held it together. He picked the right woman to marry. He really did. Do you have any idea how many Greenwells have come from Henry Nicholas and Elizabeth Greenwell? How many are there? Hundreds. (laughs) 
<laughs> there are hundreds because he had 10 kids and they got married and they had children and we are well beyond the great, great, great. They are in England. They are all over America. They are all over Hawaii and on Maui and in Honolulu. Some in Australia. But I must admit, Sherry, I do not know. To say the family is very proud and happy about the story of Mr. Greenwell because it's it's an immigrant story. Mr. Greenwell was an immigrant. He was an immigrant that stuck to his guns. He got here and he obviously fell in love with Hawaii. He loved it. And when he got old, he kept thinking, oh, I should sell my land and I should take my children. I should educate Henry. You know, he needs a proper education. But he'd amassed so much land and he put a price tag on it. Nobody could pay that. There was nobody with that kind of money with that interest in Kona's land. I mean, Mr. Greenwell's investment in Kona took a century to mature, you'd have to say, for people to realize the value of what he actually had amassed. Kona had no water system. There was no transportation. The airplanes didn't even fly in. I mean, you didn't get Kailua Airport working till 1949. The Hawaiian could finally land on the tarmac. I mean, we were an undeveloped place. People thought of Kona as the hinterlands. They truly did. It was just a great big resource waiting to be developed. And I think sometimes we still see Kona as a place that we don't know all the wonderful things that could come out of it. There's still more in Kona's future to be written. Miley Melrose, we're going to have to draw our conversation to a close today, but I do want to have you back to talk about Amy Greenwell and the Ethnobotanical Garden and what her plan was for that, and talk a little bit more about Christchurch Episcopal, especially the cemetery and other cemeteries in the area that you're familiar with. Is there anything you'd like to add before we say aloha? Just what a pleasure it has been to sit here and chat with you, Sherry. I do enjoy it very much. (laughs) Thank you so much, Miley Melrose. Aloha. Aloha. And to our listeners, thank you so much for being with us. Remember that you may subscribe to this podcast by using your phone to search for Island Conversations, and it will automatically download. Next time, we're going to be talking with Dan Brinkman, the Chief Executive Officer of Hilo Medical Center, in part one of a two-part conversation about Hilo Medical Center's capability abilities, finances, personnel, and more. Until then, please, let's all live and drive with aloha. Ahoi ho. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.